This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret, and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming, only on Hulu. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Welcome to Dig, a history podcast. At the beginning of The Crucible, mid-20th century playwright Arthur Miller's classic interpretation of the Salem Witch Panic, Betty Paris, the 10-year-old daughter of Salem minister Samuel Paris, lies catatonic in bed. She has been unconscious in bed since her father discovered her, and many of the other girls of the village, dancing around a fire in the forest. It's likely just a medical problem, but Paris can't forget the weird dancing and chanting that he heard around the fire, and deep down, he fears that something unnatural has happened to his daughter. He begs his niece, Abigail Williams, to tell him what she knows. Abigail, if you know something that may help the doctor, he begs, for God's sake, tell it to me. He then describes what he saw in the woods, his suspicion going to Tituba, his enslaved African woman from Barbados, who he saw leading the dance. I saw Tituba waving her arms over the fire when I came on you. Why was she doing that? And I heard a screeching and gibberish coming from her mouth. She was swaying like a dumb beast over that fire. In hopes that he can get to the bottom of this unsettling situation, Paris has invited the Reverend Hale, a learned man of both science and religion, to come to Salem to investigate. He interrogates Abigail Williams, who quickly shifts the blame to Tituba. Hale turns to Tituba and expertly manipulates information out of her, whipping her into a spiritual frenzy by asking her to open herself and let God shine his holy light on her, helping her to reveal what she knows. Others in the room ask Tituba, their voices hysterical, whether she saw the devil and what members of the village may have been cavorting with him. The final scene of Act One of the play culminates in a desperate monologue from Tituba, where she reveals to Hal and Paris that she did see the devil. Quote, Oh, how many times he bid me kill you, Mr. Paris. He say, Mr. Paris must be kill. Mr. Paris, no goodly man. Mr. Paris, mean man and no gentleman. And he bid me rise out of my bed and cut your throat. But I tell him, no, I don't hate that man. I don't want to kill that man. But he say, you work for me, Tituba, and I make you free. I give you pretty dress to wear and put you way high up in the air, and you gone fly back to Barbados. And I say, you lie, devil, you lie. 
And then he come one stormy night to me and he say, look, I have white people belong to me. And I look and there was goody Sarah Good. Her accusation sets off a wild final scene. Abigail begins to beg for the sweet love of Jesus and screams that she too saw goody good with the devil and Bridget Bishop and Goody Osborne. Betty Paris, who has been thus far unconscious, laying in bed, suddenly sits up and screams that she saw Martha bellows with the devil. Paris is shouting his thanks to God as the rest of the girls cry out the names of other women they saw cavorting with the devil. And in the midst of this mass hysteria, the curtain drops on Act One. It's a powerful and intense scene. You see the dangers coming for the women accused by the girls. You see the sway that the cunning Abigail Williams, who's trying to get her former lover's wife out of the way with her accusations, has over the younger girls. But what almost goes without notice is something in Tituba's short monologue, the longest chunk of dialogue she has in the play, by the way, that the devil offered her freedom from enslavement, material goods she could not dream of as a bondswoman, a return to her homeland, and a position of literal height over white residents of Salem. Arthur Miller's Tituba is a useful character. She's the only non-white character, and she's the one who conducts the ritual in the woods, which Miller styles as a kind of Barbadian voodoo ceremony. The only real witchcraft in the witchcraft panic in Miller's telling comes from the Black Tituba, who does have knowledge of potions and enchantments. In the play, there's more than one bad woman— There's the plotting temptress Abigail Williams, the embittered crone Anne Putnam, the frigid wife Elizabeth Proctor. But Tituba is set up as the simple, stupid, black, bad seed at the center of the witch panic. She may not have had a larger plot role, but it is she who brought the foreign devil, voodoo, into Puritan Salem. The Crucible is now part of the American literary canon. It's taught in high schools across the United States, often interwoven in English and social studies curricula to explore literary tools like metaphor and allegory, at the same time as teaching the history of the very real Salem Witch Panic of 1692. And while Miller, famously, wrote the play as an allegory to McCarthyism and the 1950s blacklist, he was also explicit in the introduction that the play was largely historically accurate. And yet, there is a glaring error in the play. The historical Tituba was not an ignorant pawn, nor, indeed, was she a black Barbadian voodoo queen. Who was the real Tituba? The answer is, well, not clear. (laughs) But today we'll explore the history of how she has been used, interpreted, and sought out by scholars, poets, and playwrights since the early 18th century. Today, for this installment of our Bad Women series, we are talking about Tituba, the quote-unquote Black Witch of Salem. I'm Sarah. And I'm Marissa. And we are your historians for this episode of Dig.
This episode and this entire series is dedicated to our friend Hallie Rubenhold and her very cool podcast, Bad Women, which you'll find over at Pushkin Media. Hallie is telling the story of the five women who were brutally murdered in the slums of London in 1888 by Jack the Ripper. Everything you think you know about Jack and those murdered women is wrong. Check out Bad Women wherever you get your podcasts. For those who have read The Crucible or learned about the witch trials at some point in their lives, it's likely that you have a vague recollection of Tituba. She's not the most important character in the play, and she mostly fades into the background after Act 1. But her monologue in Act 1 and her role in the dancing ritual, which actually takes place before the play begins, and so you don't actually see it. It's described but not seen. Um, They're critical to the action of the rest of the play. So if casual readers remember anything about Tituba, it's likely that she's of African descent, she's black, and she's enslaved. The fact that Tituba is from Barbados is repeated several times in the book. When Abigail Williams is asked what Tituba said to call the devil in the dancing ritual, she says, I know not. She spoke Barbados. When asked what they were doing in the woods, Abigail says it was just for fun and they did it often. That Tituba, quote, always sings her Barbados songs and we dance, end quote. Later, Abigail escalates her claim, eager to blame the whole thing on Tichiba, says that the slave came to her in her dreams. Quote, sometimes I wake up and find myself standing in the open doorway, not a stitch on my body. I always hear her laughing in my sleep. I hear her singing her Barbados songs and tempting me, end quote. In the 1998 film adaptation of the play, in which Daniel Day-Lewis is hot AF, well, according to Sarah. <laughs> um, he's, very, he's always very, like, sort of, like, farmer dirty and sweaty. I, I'm, I'm into it. He's also very tortured. <laughs> okay. He's very tortured. You know how I feel about yeah, that sounds like characters. your Yeah, that sounds like your cup of tea, so you can oh, really sure. see where Abigail's coming from. Mm-hmm. Um, so... In the 1998 film adaptation of the play, the opening scene depicts the unseen forest ritual. Right. I, I should explain in the play that the, what happens in the forest is never shown. It happens before the play begins. But in the movie, the movie opens with that ritual. Like they actually show okay. it. Right. Tichiba oversees the girls as they name men who they want to fall in love with them and then holds up a chicken, swinging it around her head before dancing and singing in an unknown, presumably African language, while at the center of the ring of white girls. Though it's not explicitly stated, this scene fashions Tichiba as a voodoo priestess. So if you take anything from the play and from the film about Tituba, it's that she's Afro-Barbadian and knowledgeable in foreign magic rituals. While the play doesn't exactly state it, Miller is drawing on what he knows his audience assumes about Afro-Caribbean slave religion. And those assumptions aren't conjured entirely out of nothing. As we've discussed in several of our episodes, like those... um, on sugar and slave rebellions in the Caribbean, there was a great deal of separation between white enslavers and the enslaved in Caribbean sugar colonies like Barbados. As a result, the enslaved developed their own religious practices, and there was little effort to formally convert them to Christianity. 
These practices were often an amalgamation of different African traditions, including aspects of Christianity, as members of different West African tribes mingled on Caribbean plantations. Often, those practices included nighttime rituals that included drumming, dancing, and singing. White observers, especially those who were adherent to strict and straight-laced European faiths, interpreted these rituals as not only animalistic and crude, but also vaguely satanic. Felix Spory, a Swiss physician, described these rituals as, quote, idolatrous ceremonies in honor of their god who was mainly the devil, end quote. The slaves danced, and he said, with, quote, terrifying shrieks and bodily movements, end quote, that seemed vaguely demonic to buttoned-up Europeans. Other white viewers associated the rituals with dark magic, even more akin to what we might recognize now as voodoo. An English military officer stationed in Barbados described the rituals as diabolical magic led by a man called the Obia, who would torment others with physical and spiritual pain, causing, quote, lameness, madness, loss of speech, and loss of all their limbs, end quote. Which <laughs> all, all their limbs just, like, fell off? They just, their limbs just fall off. and It sounds unfortunate. It was just, like, Wow. This viewer referred to obea, a practice which probably originated in West Africa, in which practitioners, obea men, harness spirits in order to work magic. The practice had many names and was practiced across the West Indies. Shango and Trinidad, obea and Jamaica, voodoo in Haiti, Centuria in Cuba, and juju in Barbados. I can never read the word Santeria without singing the song I don't practice Santeria. You know what I'm talking about? That song? No. God damn <laughs> I don't. You, you were too busy like listening to your like terrible early 2000s emo. Screamo? Blech. Yeah. <laughs> um, okay. So Miller was pulling on that voodoo slash obeya thread in the crucible to create the illicit ritual that sets off the initial tension in the play that the girls have been caught doing something that would get them in huge trouble with the theocratic village leadership, right? It's kind of like the, it's just the thing that he puts in there to create that tension. But Miller also uses Tituba for another theme in the play, the contrast between white and black. And like, we're going real English class here for a minute. <laughs> when Hale, Paris, and Anne Putnam are questioning Tituba at the end of Act 1, they ask who the devil appeared with, and she says a woman, but she couldn't say who because it was black dark. A few lines later, Miller places emphasis on the word white when Tituba tells that the devil said, look, I have white people belong to me. The bewitched girls are described as having black hearts and are up to black mischief. Abigail and Samuel Paris both accuse others of blackening their names. And in the final scene of the play where John Proctor almost saves his own life by flipping and falsely confessing and naming names of other quote unquote witches, he accepts his fate by saying, quote, I have confessed myself. Is there no good penitence but it be public? God does not need my name nailed upon the church. God sees my name. God knows how black my sins are. It is enough. On the flip side, whiteness is associated again and again with cleanliness, pureness, and innocence. After resolving not to sign his name to the false confession, Proctor tears up the paper and proclaims through his tears, 
You have made your magic now. For now, I do not think I see some shred of goodness in John Proctor. Not enough to weave a banner with, but white enough to keep it from such dogs. To preserve that white glimmer of goodness, John Proctor hangs. Tituba, who represents the ignorant and exotic evil that has set off the hysteria in Salem, is the only black character. John Proctor, at the end, chooses to hang in order to cling to his whiteness. So Miller's version of the witch panic in Salem hinges on a few things. That Tituba is Barbadian, that Tituba is black, that Tituba had knowledge of foreign magic rituals, and that the audience will connect those things in their imaginations with some kind of popular idea of voodoo. And in turn, because the crucible is the cultural artifact that most people associate with the Salem witch panic, the general modern understanding of Tituba has, in a way, been shaped by her depiction in the play. The only problem is, nearly every aspect of this depiction of Tituba is fiction. I mean, come on, you must have seen that coming, right? We were building up to it for quite a while. (laughs) Tituba may have spent time in Barbados, but several scholars don't think she was actually born there. She was enslaved, but she was almost certainly not Black or African. None of the actual folk magic rituals that the Salem girls participated in, both with and without Tituba, were of Caribbean or voodoo origin. So, This raises a couple of questions. First, of course, who actually was Tituba? Second, how did she morph into the version that Miller latched onto? And finally, how have writers and scholars used different versions of Tituba to make their version of the Salem Witch Panic fit their own political and cultural ends? So let's start with what we know about the real-life Tituba. In the first documents of the witch trials, the warrant for Sarah Osborne and Titiba's arrest, Titiba is referred to as Titibe, an Indian woman servant, and Titibe, Indian, twice. In one of Titiba's interrogations on March 1st, 1692, she's referred to as Titiba, an Indian woman, twice. In the next document, she's called the Indian woman. And like, without seeing this you wouldn't know this but like every version of this of all of these words is spelled totally different so like indian is spelled differently tituba is spelled differently so just bear with us when we say tituba like a hundred different ways on march 2nd um she's referred to in another interrogation as tituba the end womb womb In another document from March, she's referred to as Tituba Indian twice altogether. And I think that this is as correct as I could possibly be without, you know, re-flipping through these documents a hundred times. Um, I believe that Tituba is referred to as Indian at least 19 times. She is never, not even once, referred to as African or Black. There is no evidence in the trial documents that anyone in Salem Village thought that Tituba was African. That's pretty clear cut to me. Historian Elaine Bresla, in her book Tituba, Reluctant Witch of Salem, did find reference to an enslaved child named Tatuba in Barbados in 1676. She argues that Tituba was likely an Arawak Indian born in the Spanish Maine, likely modern-day Venezuela or Guyana. 
She makes this claim based on the fact that there were few Arawak Indians native to Barbados and supports her hypothesis with an extended analysis of the potential origins of the name Tituba. Side note, this is a good example of how historians try to use sources creatively when there is very little source material. Yeah, and like we can we can have a debate over whether this is good mm-hmm. history work, whether this is, you know, something that we should do. Um, but she had so little to work with that, you know, it it is understandable that she used what she had. You yeah, know? that's what you have to do. You have to use what you have or those people, their stories go untold entirely, which is the other option. Exactly. The name, she says, has a Spanish flavor. Ooh, I don't know. What does that even? I don't even understand what that means. Um, <laughs> I don't know either, but that's what okay, she says. So it has a Spanish flavor, guys. <laughs> And is similar to the names of several different bands of Arawaks, but particularly the Tetepatana, located near a river that flows through Venezuela and Guyana. She then explains that Arawaks often went by names that related to the name of their band or community, with endings that related to their sex. So, for instance, a woman of the Tetepatana tribe would go by Tetepatado. Here's the connection she makes from a name like Tetepatado and the historical Tituba. A Barbados planter, hearing the Spanish-sounding name, may well have dropped the ending syllable and called a member of the tribe by the name Tetubi, which, with its variant spellings, including Tituba, Tatuba, and Tituba, end quote. So again, hanging a lot on sort of presumption and, you know, that sort of it's reasonable to believe, like, you know, it, it's really, it's really like tenuous yeah tenuous is the right word but yeah but it's also um i think it's a valid uh a valid method it's it's a linguistic method Mm -hmm. like there's a lot of um especially when it comes to uh enslaved and indigenous folks in um the americas or in africa there's a lot of historians that have to do like linguistic work Mm -hmm. like this to get anywhere so to me, it makes total sense. Yeah, exactly. And but that doesn't. He, she's not saying this is definitely what happened. Sure. She's saying this. Yeah, it's it's very speculative. Like she's very careful to be very speculative, and and that's one reason I was glad I was doing this um, episode with you because I knew that you would have sort of like the insight of a, a scholar of very early um, America. A speculative scholar. Yeah, no, I mean, like, that you would have the insight of, like, how you have to use sources because sources are so different than the kind of sources that, say, a 20th century Americanist is going to have, right? There's yeah. just yep. more documentation in that time period than there was in the 17th century, especially when mm-hmm. you're looking at, in you know, the enslaved. Mm-hmm. Right. So... Breslau isn't the only scholar who rests their argument uh, about Tituba's ethnicity on the etymology of her name. Peter Hoffer, who has written several books about Salem, uses a similar methodology but comes to entirely different conclusions. He argues that Tituba was Yoruba, born in West Africa, sold into slavery, and transported to Barbados in the transatlantic slave trade. He bases this, it seems, almost entirely on the fact that Tituba and Yoruba kind of sound similar, which, to be fair, is kind of also what Breslau does in her Tete Batana, Tete Batado, Tituba argument. Um, Hoffer's argument, though, doesn't bear the same scrutiny that Breslau's does, simply because the vast majority of the actual documentation of the Salem witch trials refers to Tituba as Indian. 
He tries to suggest that this is because Tichuba had a kind of common law marriage to a man named John Indian. Um, but there's no evidence from this time that women's ethnicity would have been changed or shaped by an interracial marriage. So in other words, it doesn't seem likely or there it's not supported in other evidence that when say a white woman married an Indian man, like just using that as an example, not that that was very common, um, that she would then be referred to as Indian. Does that make sense? Well, if that was used as his surname, right, then I can see I can see that they that she would have been known as Tichaba Indian or something because she but and then other people would just say, oh, well, she's an Indian then because they, we keep calling her Tichaba Indian. I think that that's the argument that Hoffer is making. Right. I mean, um, and if you if you dig really into this, the the many debates on this and the, the person who's written about this the most. Um, oh, geez, I can't think of what his first name is. Bernard. Um, Bernard Rosenthal, um, you know, just kind of points out that, like, there really isn't any evidence that she and John Indian were married mm-hmm. or even had a relationship at all. And so it's it, mm-hmm. it's based on almost more speculation than Breslau's is, I yeah. guess. Yeah, I mean, I it seems even more tenuous to me. <laughs> yeah, and there's so much there's so much evidence to counter it that it's it 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 is up against more than Breslau's if is if that makes mm-hmm. sense. You have yeah. to disregard more evidence to believe Hoffer's interpretation than you do Breslau's. Yeah. Where was I? Okay. So um further, uh Peter Hoffer in his sort of linguistic analysis of the name Tituba leans really heavily on the UBA, the Yuba ending of Tituba. But that's also a problem because in the documents of the witch trials, her name is spelled a different, or a zillion different ways, including many ways that don't end with Yuba at all. So it's possible, for instance, that it wasn't pronounced Tituba, that it was pronounced Titebe or whatever, and it was just Tituba was one of the many different ways that it was misspelled. We just are used to the name Tituba because that's the one that people, historians have seized on. It may not actually have been the name that she used or the way that she pronounced it. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think that both of these interpretations are valid and possible. I would say that the um, Breslau idea seems more, seems to hold up a little better. Mm-hmm. But I can see why Peter Hoffer uh, makes these suggestions because it does seem more unlikely that there would be an Arawak Indian from the Spanish main who ended up in, in Puritan New England. Like, I feel like there are fewer of them unless there is some kind of migration pattern that I don't know about, but I haven't really heard much about that. Whereas it makes a lot more sense that um, an Afro-Caribbean woman would yeah if you're looking at sort of like the the general pattern of like who you would imagine an enslaved person in you know colonial new england was it makes more sense to us that it would be a enslaved african woman who came by way of barbados just because we know that was more common and that's the 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 pattern that we are more familiar with but bresla um did a lot of work sort of explicating why it would have been that 
an Arawak Indian um, from, say, Venezuela ended up in Barbados in the first place and then how she went from Barbados to New England. And she's certainly not saying she's not saying that that was common. She's saying that that is kind of an unusual sort of contingent thing that happens just because of Samuel Paris, because Samuel Paris was both, um, you know, you know, had ties to the Massachusetts Bay Colony and also ties to Barbados in a way that not a ton of other Puritan mm-hmm. New Englanders did. So it's it's that in itself is kind of unusual. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of what what makes this whole thing happen. Right. It's certainly not impossible at no, all. No, not even right. not even implausible. It's just it's, it's just, just if different. you were going by yeah. sheer numbers, you would the the Afro-Caribbean right would make more sense. But, and that's why it makes sense yeah. to us all of the versions that we're familiar with that Tituba was black. Mm-hmm. Right. It's an easy assumption to make. Exactly. Right. Yeah. So now that we sort of know Tituba's <laughs> sort ethnicity, of, yeah. <laughs> now that we have some ideas about Tituba's ethnicity, um, before we explore how Tituba became African in the public eye and, well, the scholarly mind also, um, let's just clear up how the real Tituba was involved in the witch panic in Salem. Tituba was somehow enslaved, perhaps as a child in a slaving raid into Venezuela, and brought to Barbados, where she eventually came to be inherited by Samuel Paris, who was in Barbados overseeing the sugar plantation he inherited from his father. By the time she came to live with Samuel Paris, she was a teenager. Elaine Breslau claims, with no real evidence, that it was likely that she served as Paris's concubine, writing, quote, whether she found Paris attractive and was willing to satisfy his sexual needs, or if she dreaded her new role in his household, can only be surmised. She came from a South American society in which chastity was not valued and girls were occasionally given to men to pay off debts, end quote. Yikes, right? I mean... Yeah, yikes, and also, like, South American society valued chastity more than almost any other society. So it's really weird that she's not more specific yeah. there. I think she means an indigenous society or something, indigenous South yeah. American society. Because yeah. at this point, the Spanish and Portuguese had been in South America for 200 years or something, yeah. um, 150 years. So, like, sh- that's annoying yes. to me that she and that she said it that I way. I think that's a really important point to highlight. She she makes kind of sweeping statements like that and makes a lot of assumptions. Um I think that there is in my reading of her book, I thought that it was really fascinating and I learned a lot and as, you know, if you go through the show notes, I footnote to her very often. But then sometimes the the power of some of her some of her interpretations you would be kind of taken away by these other statements that she made where I'm kind of like really she came from a South American society in which chastity was not valued like that's just kind of like this really broad statement that like I feel like when you're saying something like that like you really gotta have receipts um right and yeah it's also you know she's kind of using it to make this I don't know, sort of suggest that, like, maybe she was in, like, she wasn't, I don't know, like, she was into this relationship with Paris. She also has no evidence that she and Paris had any kind of relationship at all. So 
it just that the that whole section of her book, I was kind of like, why? Right. Other than maybe she's kind of saying like, oh, this was like you know, you uh, just there's more of the usual to Tichaba or something. Exactly. Which yeah, that we have no evidence of that. <laughs> right, and more of the usual of slavery in general. Like we know that slave owners raped their slaves, and we know that they had concubines. Um, but it's okay because so, they came from societies where chastity wasn't valued. Yeah, sure. And also we can just assume that this would have been going on in this relationship because he was a youngish man and she was a youngish woman. And like, I don't know. I just feel yeah. like you have to have a little more evidence than that. It made me think a lot of um, Celia, mm-hmm. um, yeah. our Celia episode, because he so carefully demonstrates why he came to that conclusion and you know, Celia said right. that in her, in all of her testimony. Yeah. So um, anyway, I yeah, just want to make sure that we flag that that's a, that's a I weird I mean, if I read that statement. in the book, I would be like, what? <laughs> exactly. What? Yeah. There was a few statements like that in the mm-hmm. book. So either way, in 1680, Samuel Paris moved from Barbados back to Boston, bringing Tituba with him. She arrived in a city that was distrustful of Indians, still reeling from King Philip's War, also known as Metacom's War, um, which was a protracted and destructive war between the New England colonists and several local Indian tribes between 1675 and 1678. I'm I'm really, really simplifying that. Um, Maybe someday we do an episode on that, but it's very complicated, so we're just going to leave it there for now. Uh, Still... Indian house servants were quite common in New England, and Tituba would have had more rights than a slave in Barbados. Later, in 1680, Paris married, soon had two children, and became a Puritan minister. In 1689, the family moved to Salem, where Paris had been called to pastor. Paris was not exactly popular in Salem, and the villagers weren't impressed with his preaching or with his requested salary. In the fall of 1691, the village committee out and out refused to pay Paris or to provide him with any firewood for the long, cold Massachusetts winter. I really see that as like, we're not going to pay you and not going to give you any firewood either. Yeah, like it's like the the like final you at the end of that <laughs> yeah <laughs> in turn paris's sermons started to focus on the conspiracy of satan against the church and against the people of salem so you know he's using his sermons to kind of focus on issues of conspiracy and being persecuted right it's he, he's sort of working out his personal things through his sermons right and to kind of like in a week to like weekly push back like, way sort of like needling needling exactly right right so in 1691 things were unsettled and anxious in the paris household and in salem in general this is when in the winter of 1692 two little girls of the paris household betty paris and abigail williams who was paris's niece began to try to tell their fortune using an old English folk practice in which they cracked eggs into a glass and read the shape of the yolk. They believed that they saw the shape of a coffin in the blobs. They did this on their own, 
and there's no evidence that Tichibo was involved in this divination. But after their gross egg game, Betty Paris became mysteriously ill with weird symptoms like the sensation of being choked, pinched, and seeing visions. Finally, after weeks of her suffering, the Paris's neighbor, Mary Sibley, came up with a plan to figure out who was bewitching little Betty. She enlisted Tichuba and the other enslaved Indian in the Paris household, John Indian, to help her prepare a so-called witch cake made of rye meal and urine. Barf. <laughs> That's also, oh my God. Just I know. <laughs> Who's urine? The girls. That's my question. The girls specifically. Well, okay. That's important. Yeah. All right. I mean, if you're going to have to, you know, eat urine, it should be little girl's urine, I guess. Well, thankfully, they didn't have to eat it. So that's good. good. (laughs) The witch cake was then fed to a dog, okay, which would, according to lore, reveal the name of its witch companion. Um, And and just as like a side note here, um, I should say that... um, a lot of the scholars of the Salem Witch Trials, and I certainly didn't read everyone. There's like one bajillion books written on the Salem Witch Trials. But many of them believe that Betty Paris was probably having like psycho um, somatic uh, symptoms, right? That like she lived in such a powerfully the- theocratic society. She knew that what she had been doing was um, was illicit and then was really stressed about it. And that stress sort of revealed its, itself in all of these, you know, weird things. It was it, her her brain was was trying to deal with the stress of of what they had been doing. Of course, we don't have hard fa- facts, like hard evidence of that, but it seems pretty reasonable to me. So scholars are more or less agreed that this pea flower, urine flower, I should say, cake was English folk magic. There's no evidence at all that this was Tituba's actual idea or that Tituba had any particular knowledge or experience with either white or dark magic. Instead, Elaine Breslaw has suggested that Tituba and John Indian were actually roped in by Mary Sibley, the neighbor, because she assumed that they had experience with magic mostly because they were Indians. In other words, they were brought into it because Indians in general were believed to have special magic knowledge, not that these particular Indians had magic knowledge. Moreover, it would just be easy for Tituba to get the ingredients needed for the cake, you know, particularly the urine. She'd have access to Betty Paris's urine as a house servant in the Paris household. But that makes sense. Yeah. From there, you likely know the story. Betty and Abigail became more and more hysterical, and their bizarre symptoms spread to other girls in the village. Soon, the Reverend Paris had to call in outside experts to help him figure out what was happening to the girls. He interviewed the girls themselves, following the example of ministers like Cotton Mather. In these interrogations, the girls identified three women as the culprits, Sarah Good, Sarah Osborne, and Tichuba. Each kind of a social outcast in Salem Village. The three were arrested, imprisoned, and interrogated in a series of hearings. Both Good and Osborne denied all the charges, but Tichuba, called last to take the stand, confessed to consorting with the devil, blamed the other women for forcing her to hurt the children, and telling a wild tale about secret covens, evil animals, and hairy imps. 
from there, more and more and more people were implicated as those who were accused desperately tried to save themselves. It's possible that before her arrest and questioning, Tichuba was beaten by Samuel Paris. The evidence for this only comes from one writer, Robert Califf, who wrote a history of the witch trials in 1700. But Elaine Breslau makes an argument about this potential beating that I think is actually really interesting. Paris obviously believed that something nefarious was afoot and believed that Tituba was part of it. When he asked Tituba what she had done and she insisted that nothing had happened or, you know, only something that was fairly innocuous, like the pea cake, the urine cake, um, he beat her, which taught her pretty quickly that that was not what her master wanted to hear. So when she got on the stand in the hearing, she simply said what she thought the interrogators would want to hear. And the ultimate result was that while the panic grew and more people were implicated, Tituba was ultimately rewarded for flipping and was not convicted or executed. In the end, 18 people were hanged and one crushed during the witch panic. Tituba, on the other hand, spent a miserable 18 months in prison and then was sold off to pay for the prison fees. From there, Tituba simply disappears completely from the written record. That is what we actually know about Tituba's role in the witch panic. So how did we get from an enslaved Indian woman transported to New England and then reluctantly drawn into a witch panic to an African voodoo priestess conducting mysterious rituals in the dark of night? To answer that question, my friends, we need historiography. Woo-woo! Historiography! Woohoo! We've actually seen how the initial record is shaped by the histories that follow. Take, for instance, the way that the allegation that Paris beat Tichuba into eventually confessing changed the narrative. And that was among the very first things written about the witch panic. In 1828, we have the first novel about Salem called Rachel Dyer, in which author John Neal refers to Tichuba as a woman of diabolical power. It's here, says Salem scholar Bernard Rosenthal, that, quote, the Tichuba legend begins to assume its future shape, end quote. A few years later, Charles Upham, a reverend and member of Congress who fashioned himself a historian of the witch trials, wrote his first set of lectures on Salem. In 1867, he expanded those lectures into a full-length history called Salem Witchcraft. In this text, Upham introduced two new details to the story. First, that Tichuba and John Indian had brought ideas about Barbados magic into Salem, and second, that Tichuba held secret meetings with the girls of Salem and, quote, inflamed their imaginations with those tales, end quote, of Barbados voodoo. While he doesn't quite call her diabolical, he suggests that she was superstitious and certainly an instigator of things to come. It was other works of fiction that helped to transform Tichuba in the 19th century. Elizabeth Gaskell, the British author famous for her novel North and South, wrote a short story called Lois the Witch, <laughs> which I don't know why, but just the, the name Lois the Witch. Makes me laugh. <laughs> uh, she wrote this this story in 1859, and it features two Indian women, one in quote, old Indian crone named Natty, who has weird stories that she told to, quote, young girls of the oppressing race, which had brought her down to a state little differing from slavery and reduced her people to outcasts on the hunting grounds that had belonged to her fathers, end quote. 
The other was a gentler woman named Hota, who nonetheless is beaten into false confession because she is Indian like the Maleficent Natty. She based her characters on Upham's initial lectures, which in turn, it seems, influenced Upham's book-length history. So she writes her stories based on the early lectures, and then when Upham revises those lectures into his history, he actually uses this fictional account to kind of shape his later book. Right. Yeah. So th- there's lots of this. So it gets kind of confusing. Mm-hmm. Rosenthal writes this about this, this whole kind of sharing. Gaskell's probable use of Upham creates a striking irony. The British storyteller reads the American historian and embellishes his tale to create a fictional role for Tituba and a circle of girls. A decade later, Upham incorporates that fiction into his history, establishes an enduring myth, and the generations that follow subscribe to a tale told by a 19th century historian that may indeed have been invented by a 19th century British novelist. Yeah, but that's that's like what Victorian historians did. <laughs> that's like that's par for the course. I mean, I, I don't I, I'm not I don't know as if I would say that it was totally unheard of. Um, but it's also wrong, right? <laughs> it's, you know, I'm not, I don't think that, that Rosenthal is saying that this is a shocking case and it's and had never happened before, but that this is the, the. No, I'm not saying yeah. he is saying that. I'm saying that, that, that sounds about right. Like I think a lot of 19th century yeah, British. Sourcing was not, uh, really, there were not really strict standards. <laughs> Right. And they were kind of like, you know, they they often romanticize things. So they wanted to tell a good story and stuff. Definitely. Um, Yeah. Right. So we can't pin it completely on Gaskill, though. Henry Wadsworth Longfellow also wrote fiction about the witch trials in the form of an 1868 play called Giles Corey of the Salem Farms. Longfellow's Tijuba is first described as an Indian woman, but later as half African, whose father was an OB man who taught her magic. In the first lines of the play, Tijuba has a lengthy monologue in which she catalogues her herbal remedies and considers the powers they give her over the white people in Salem. Quote, I, Tichiba, an Indian and a slave, am stronger than the captain with his sword, am richer than the merchant with his money, am wiser than the scholar with his books, mightier than ministers and magistrates with all of the fear and reverence that attend them. For I can fill their bones with aches and pains, can make them cough with asthma, shake with palsy, can make their daughter see and talk with ghosts, or fall into delirium and convulsions. I have the evil eye, the evil hand, a touch from me and they are weak with pain, a look from me and they consume and die. The death of cattle and the blight of corn, the shipwreck, the tornado, and the fire, these are my doings and they know it not. Thus I work vengeance on mine enemies who, while they call me slave, are slaves to me, end quote. This seems like a, a real influence on Arthur Miller to me, um, that that shorter um, monologue that she has at the end of Act One is, is really sort of saying the same thing as um, Wadsworth or as Longfellow has her saying, but just kind of boiled down, right? That this is about an enslaved person seeking some kind of, of power that they can't have in their, their everyday life. 
When George Bancroft, the famed American historian of the 19th century, issued an updated version of his History of the United States in 1876, his description of the witch trials changed Tetiaba from Indian, as she had been in all of the previous editions of that book, to half Indian, half Negro. It seems the only source Bancroft had for this was Longfellow, which was a lyrical play and definitely not history, which is interesting because Bancroft is often held up as um, one of the first um, professional historians when history kind of started to be um, done in the mode of like a social science in a more objective, professionalized way. Yeah, and not just sort of um, antiquarianism. Right, right. Like like Upham was. Yeah. Yeah, but I mean... Bancroft was wrong about a lot of oh, things. Oh, yeah, absolutely, <laughs> for sure. And once again, I think I think a lot of it does come from that um, impulse to romanticize. Sure. I think. Yeah, I just um, I think it's interesting that even Bancroft, the the you know professional mm-hmm. historian, is still kind of doing the same thing. Right. Uh, historian John Fisk's book New France and New England, which was published in 1904, took the half breed theory and further embellished Tituba's character, making her fit. What can only be assumed was a pre-existing idea that he had about mysterious, exotic women of color. He wrote that Samuel Paris owned, quote, two colored servants who he had brought with him from the West Indies. The man was known as John Indian. The hag, Tituba, who passed for his wife, was half Indian and half Negro. Their intelligence was of a low grade, but it sufficed to make them experts in palmistry, fortune-telling, magic, second sight, and incantations. There is not a shred of evidence for any of that. Yeah, I mean, just sounds uh, interesting. It sounds interesting, and yeah. Yeah. The modern historian Chadwick Hansen points out that while other 20th century historians didn't adopt Fisk's explicitly racist description, they nonetheless allowed racism to color their writing about Tichuba. He says it this way, quote, It is perhaps to the credit of American intellectuals that nobody has adopted Fisk's inventions. Yet other writers' portraits of Tichuba and John have also been full of inventions, and if they are less vicious than Fisk's, they are nevertheless attributable to racial stereotyping, end quote. In Marion Starkey's classic, The Devil in Massachusetts, published in 1949, Tituba is described as John Indian's consort, who is half Carib and half Negro, and also half savage. Wait, how can you be three halves of something? <laughs> Ask Margaret or Marion Starkey. <laughs> uh, I guess the Carib is the savage, the savage half. The savage I think half. so. <laughs> oh, my God. Oh, my God. Um. She's described as lazy and stupid with slow Southern speech, and then later as the trembling black woman. She also, according to Starkey, quote, yielded to the temptation to show the children tricks and spells, fragments of something like voodoo remembered from the Barbados, end quote. I want to just underline something Marissa just said there that um, that Marion Starkey has her described as lazy and stupid with slow Southern speech. Um which makes literally no sense because right. she wasn't Southern. She did not come from the American South. There's no evidence of that at all. So that was that really, I think, just sort of highlights the assumptions that people were drawing on when they wrote about Tituba that, um, you know, 
1949, when somebody thought about a, an enslaved person, they were thinking about mm-hmm. a sort of version from popular culture that, you know, that they were slow and Southern. Yeah, so. like an antebellum. Exactly. Um, antebellum, uh, uh, what's that? Uh, like a minstrel um, show is... trope, right? Yes, that's exactly. what I was trying to think yeah. of that. <laughs> minstrel, of, exactly, which... It has nothing reading... to do with Tituba, yeah. Right, yeah. Right. So remember, there was no evidence of any voodoo rituals taking place at all, or any evidence that Tituba knew anything about voodoo. But once one historian said that Tituba used voodoo, it was fair game. Sociologist Kai Erickson, in his study of deviants, which centered on the witch trials called wayward Puritans, relied almost entirely on Starkey for his descriptions of Tituba, who he says, quote, had grown up among the rich colors and imaginative legends of Barbados and who was probably acquainted with some form of voodoo. Later, he says that she was an, quote, excitable woman who had breathed the warmer winds of the Caribbean and knew things about magic her crusty old judges would never learn. Again, this is based on nothing <laughs> except, you know, previous <laughs> secondary sources and a lot of, you know, offensive assumptions about the Caribbean, about mm-hmm. you know, bright colors and warm winds and yeah. I mean, there's more offensive stuff about the Caribbean than that. Bright colors and warm whims. Sound, sure, but that's what it's not he's horrible. drawing on, right? Yeah, yeah. he's like novelizing yeah, this exactly. using his prejudices about different places. Yeah. yeah. Um, in 1950, another fictional adaptation transformed Tichuba even more. William Carlos William, the pediatrician poet of the Icebox Plums, wrote a play called Tichuba's Children. Williams draws heavily on Starkey's Devil in Massachusetts, using whole quotes from the history in between his dialogue. Oh my god, so f***ing lazy. (laughs) You don't think? Oh yeah, absolutely. Just Arthur Miller's did exactly the same thing in The Crucible a few years later, but his is not purely quoted material. In Williams' play, Tichuba is unsurprisingly lazy and stupid with drawling speech. Williams has Tichuba writing in what can only be assumed was his idea of black slave dialect. Then there's Arthur Miller's The Crucible, first published in 1953. Miller's Tichuba isn't even half Indian, but described only as the Negro slave. In the play, Tichuba actually has been conducting a ritual in the woods, boiling a live frog in a kettle, uh, slaughtering chickens for their blood, and brewing love potions. This is all designed to be vaguely voodoo. And Chadwick Hansen has a really interesting take, I think, on why Miller sets up Tituba as black. First, of course, is to dramatize her as a kind of voodoo priestess. But in a more literary flourish, Miller also uses Tituba to underscore the white clergy as the true villains of the witch panic. In the scene where Hale gets Tituba to confess, he whips her up into a frenzy, almost exactly in the way a camp meeting itinerant minister might induce a revival goer into giving her heart to Jesus. All around her, the other girls start shouting their confessions, giving the whole scene the feeling of an ecstatic religious service. Hansen pulls no punches in explaining his opinion of the scene. He says, quote, It is as vulgar a scene as Miller ever wrote, with Tituba featured as Aunt Jemima in the same camp meeting. Yikes. Oh, my God. <laughs> wow. Um, 
So after Miller's version of the story was publicized in the very successful Crucible, even professional historians seemed to import that version of Tichaba into their histories. Even John Damos, who's a very well-written historian in early America and the witch trials, refers to Tichaba as a Negro slave in historical work. Hansen sees this as the moment it was cemented that Tichaba was now African. Quote, when Damos adopted Miller's distortion of Tichaba's race, as earlier historians had adopted Longfellow's, her metamorphosis was complete, end quote. At the end of his 1974 essay on Tichaba's racial transformation, Chadwick Hansen makes a really interesting case that this is all really the product of racism, not always overtly, but more insidiously. As white historians have tried to make sense of the ultimately irrational witch trials, they've ended up adding things to the story that help it make sense. It made sense to 19th and 20th century scholars that a black Barbadian woman would have imported exotic magical practices, generally just called voodoo, from exotic magical places. Quote, we are not free from racism as intellectuals, even those who call themselves allies, Hansen wrote, or we will not be free of it until we recognize, among other things, that beliefs and practice which we regard as superstitious do not necessarily have racial boundaries, until we recognize, in short, that witchcraft, when it is found in New England, is more likely to be English in origin than Indian or Negro. End quote. That's so well said. <laughs> I just loved that that essay. If you're interested in this topic, um, I really recommend Chadwick Hansen's essay because it's just really well written and he traces all of this so clearly. And then it was written in 1974. So it's very, I think, um, influenced by the Black Power movement. Mm-hmm. And he kind of ties it to that at the end. Um, and I, in a way that I thought was just really fascinating. Yeah, no, that's amazing. It sounds cool. But there's yet one more transformation that happens to Tituba. Starting in the 1980s, Tituba was reclaimed by poets and novelists again as not uh, only a black woman, but as an empowering story of a powerful black wise woman oppressed by ignorant, close-minded white oppressors. Probably the best example of this is writer Maurice Condé's Moi Tituba Sorciere Noir de Salem, or I Tituba, Black Witch of Salem. I should have had Marissa say that uh, because she has a beautiful French pronunciation and I do not. But um, this book imagines Tituba's long and eventful life ranging from Barbados to Boston and then back to Barbados. In the book, Tituba really is a wise woman or an herbal healer, having learned the practice from her adopted mother, an elderly slave maroon who teaches her herbalism. And I really wanted to read some of this book to include you know, passages from it, but I could not find a translated copy of it anywhere. I know they exist. Um, they Lockwood, our library did not have one. I couldn't find one on the internet. Um, I just, they were all French, so sorry. You'll have to go read that on your own time. Uh, anyway, one edition of Condé's book includes a foreword by none other than Angela Davis, you know, exclamation point, who writes that, quote, those who dispute Tituba's African descent, countering that she was Indian, are perhaps hoping to stir up enmity between Black and Native American women as we seek to recreate our respective histories. Davis's point here, I think, is to protect a history that, once repressed, is now being reclaimed by an oppressed people. But the problem is that it's wrong. 
In this case, it doesn't matter all that much because, you know, Conde's book is fiction and in fiction you can do whatever you want, you know, allowing the writer to imagine a history that otherwise couldn't be reconstructed. Tituba's mythic role as a wronged ancestor in that, you know, we're daughters of the witches you burned sort of way continues to this day. In doing research for this episode, I came upon several modern poems about Tituba, which almost all fashioned Tituba as African or um, and or actually possessing some amount of magic knowledge. Take, for instance, the poem Tituba Speaks by Jacqueline Bishop, which was you know just recently published in 2017. The magic I brought, wrapped up tight in the bosom of my chest to Salem, Massachusetts, came not from slaves, nor from my Guyanese Indian people, but from a white woman who taught it to me back in Barbados, where I forcefully was taken. She, the one, those days we alone on the plantation showed me how to curse someone and how to turn back the curse to cure somehow. Some nights that woman and I would look up to the flat white face of the moon. And it is true, we both called the moon mother. She had a black cat about her, she called familiar. There was a broom she never touched, leaning against the far wall in the corner. While in The Crucible, and even in histories of the witch panic, Tituba seems to fade into the background as the frenzy in Salem ramps up. It's clear that Tituba is an eminently useful character. She serves as the central explanation for the whole irrational, incomprehensible thing. Her foreign influence is the thing that set this whole panic in motion. And there's a kernel of truth to that. In the documents of the Salem Panic, Tituba is the first to confess and the first to implicate others in her confession, which undoubtedly saved her life. So in a sense, she did kick the whole thing off. But she didn't introduce a folk magic practice that set the whole thing in motion. Indeed, she didn't even suggest those occult practices at all. Instead, she was drawn into it because of the assumptions of those around her. That because she was Indian, because she had come to Salem from Barbados, she would obviously have experience that could help the bewitched Betty Paris. As time went on and the historical Tichiba faded from the record, the imagined Tichiba continued to be useful, mostly to white writers and intellectuals who sought to make some sense of the insensible Salem witch panic. And I would say that not only useful, useful to to each um, context within its context, right? So uh, like late 19th century or early 20th century writers used Tichiba to sort of um to be this sort of symbol of this antebellum minstrelsy um you know aunt jemima type character or whatever um that fit their current imagination you know what i mean and so right they're they're in a way this is like what we want people to do we want people to kind of see themselves and see their own lives and their worlds in history like in a way you kind of want mm-hmm. that um but that is what makes historiography so interesting even though it sounds boring is that it tells us more about the people who wrote it than it does about yeah the people they're writing about right we can see in if you trace how tituba has been portrayed in both history and in fiction going all the way back to that first book that was written in 1700 you can see how her character changes to fit the times that Mm -hmm. people were writing in right so like that's why we can go from 
um, a, a sort of menacing tituba in, like, say, the late 19th century, one that's, you know, this voodoo priestess who's dangerous and, and you know, um, stupid and whatever else that, you know, that one, I think it was John Fisk or something, um, described her as, to, like, in the 1980s, influenced by black power and by the women's rights movement um suddenly she becomes an empowering character someone that we can kind of resurrect and and um cling to as sort of an example of what slavery um and you know white puritanical Mm -hmm. religion took away yeah it's it's interesting and it does kind of remind me a little bit of Chengi Sao and just the the ways that those errors kept sort of accumulating on one mm-hmm. another over time. Yeah. Um, right. Yeah. And I think that this is something that all of our, all, all of our bad women episodes have in common in, in very different ways, of course. But, you know, it, it makes me think of a lot of Elizabeth's episode about Rosa Parks and that, you know, R- Rosa Parks as a, it, she has almost an inverse sort of, you know, experiences Rosa Parks where, her kind of radical politics and her activism is written out of the story to make her mm-hmm. more palatable, right? Whereas Tituba is made into the demon of the story in order to to you know, really take the onus off of the white girls so that they appear more like they were just mm-hmm. pawns when it seems from the historical documentation that they were really the ones that set the whole thing actually in motion. They were the um, one who were practicing these sort of um, anti-Christian folk ways and things like right, that. Right, and that they were English. They were based mm-hmm. on English sort of folk um, practices. It, it's easier. It fits a certain assumption that we have that, you know, white people never did that kind of thing, right? That's voodoo. Right. That's... that's foreign and when like every single human being on the planet was a pagan you know at some point like right uh, yeah and everyone has folk traditions and folk practices and Mm -hmm. that's just part of being a human being um yeah it's it's part of that chip on the shoulder it's that sort of imperial chip on the shoulder that oh we're so sort of advanced as 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 brits or whatever and Mm -hmm. you know we've come to bring civilization to these um lowly caribs or whatever you know it's Mm -hmm. yeah you know it's it's all colonial (laughs) it's all racist colonial bullshit all colonial um Um, we just got ourselves like blacklisted somewhere i think yeah i'm sure oh i'm sure we just actually we just broke the law in some in some states i think probably because it's like but like yeah. we're also clear um, about how the the 1980s black power feminist appropriation of tichaba is also wrong so you know right. that's because we're historians here and even if we support mm-hmm black women reclaiming powerful black women in the past like that that's a great thing to do fine great um you know it's for a good cause we don't we're not going to pretend that that's accurate you know right yeah yeah so um i have to say i i struggled with who i was going to write about for this episode um i went back and forth it wasn't actually until um I was having dinner with two of my colleagues, Eric Seaman and Victoria Wolcott, um, and they actually, they actually were the ones that came up with this <laughs> oh <my> God, really? <laughs> topic. And um, 
Yeah, and Eric um, mentioned some of these authors, and I was like, oh, okay, you know, I, I guess I'll look at that. I, you know, I'm I'm interested in the Salem witch trials, but I've never. My experience with Tituba, my thought, you know, my my image, I should say, that I had in my mind of Tituba was based entirely on Miller, um, because we spent so long reading that when I was in high school that it's really embedded in my brain. Um, so shout out to Victoria and Eric for for inspiring this episode. I really enjoyed it. I got you can really go down like a Salem witch trials black hole. Um, and I certainly did here. It was really, really fun. So um, there are um, all of the sources that we talked about are in the bibliography or are linked in the um, in the transcript so if you want to do a little digging on this topic yourself i really encourage it there's tons of stuff to learn um yeah and so um that's it thank you eric and victoria that was perfect yes it was really it was really <laughs> a fun. really great topic okay if you want to hear about more bad women in history definitely check out hallie rubenhold's new podcast Bad Women, The Ripper Retold. Yeah, it, lots of sort of reinvestigating history in the way that we have, you know, tried to show in these few episodes, but with the women who were uh, murdered by Jack the Ripper and really an important historical right. intervention in her book. And it, really exciting that it's coming through in a podcast as well. Yeah. And there's a whole other element like the true crime salaciousness sort of exactly. that, that we didn't yeah. um, get into. I don't think in any of our bad women episode, but that's the part I'm most looking forward to. Yeah, me too. Um, there are um, for a transcript of this episode, go to digpodcast.org where we have um all of the tra- all of our episodes have full transcripts, have um, full bibliographies, footnotes, and additional resources. Um, if you're interested in teaching with our episodes, go ahead and check out our four educators page. We have, and we're constantly updating tons of lesson plans and activity ideas for you to use um, if you assign podcasts in your syllabuses or or use them in your classroom. Uh, you can find us on Facebook and on Twitter and on Instagram at what? Dig underscore history? Dig podcast? I don't know. You you can find us. You know how to Facebook. <laughs> um, you can join our pod squad on Facebook. If you look for Dig History Pod Squad, we have lots of interesting debates and conversations there and, you know, share lots of history memes. And that's fun as well. Um what am I forgetting, Marissa? Oh, you can buy Dig merch at our merch store. The link is on our uh, our website, but it's at T Public. And Avril is always coming up with weird new designs to put up there. I just bought one recently, and I like it a lot. I just bought the um, medieval translators. Get your <laughs> together. <laughs> <laughs> nice. <laughs> it's like my favorite. Um, but yeah, so, and also if you um, are not yet one of our patrons, you can go to patreon.com slash dig podcast. Yep. Help history. us, help us keep this, keep this thing running. Yep. Okay. And thank you for listening. What the most drawn out outro ever. I know it was horrible. <laughs> oh Sorry. God, Sorry, so listeners. Bad. Okay. Bye. Bye. Abigail, if you know something that may help the dot, that. Abigail, if you know something that may help the doctor, why am I saying doctor so fucking weird? Always her laughing, always hear her. Okay. But particularly, but particularly the Tete Bat, oh my God. Tete, Tete, Tete Batana. Okay. 
She then explains that Arawaks were often... She often... Oh my god, what the fuck? <laughs> she then explains that Arawaks were often... Oh my god, why can't I talk? <laughs> I have no idea. Spurry? Spory? Spor okay. Felix Spory, a swish... A swish? <laughs> a swish? Swish, 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 swish. Oh my god. <laughs> Made of rye meal and pee. Wait, piss? Like like urine? Like literal pee. Yes. Oh, like, okay. Can I say urine? Because pee meal is a thing. <laughs> so okay, I was... fine. Yeah. Okay. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.